Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 43, Disaster Preparedness and COVID-19. My guest, Carl Kim, is Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and Director of the Graduate Program in Disaster Management and Humanitarian Assistance. Professor Kim is currently Director of the National Disaster Preparedness Training Center, authorized by the U.S. Congress to develop and deliver FEMA-certified training courses for underserved and at-risk communities on natural hazards, mitigation, and urban planning. The center has trained more than 50,000 first responders, emergency managers, and leaders in 400 communities across the world. In addition, Professor Kim is Editor-in-Chief of Transportation Research Interdisciplinary Perspectives and is editing a 10-volume series on disaster risk reduction and resilience. He has also led research and training programs in Vietnam, Philippines, and Indonesia. Professor Carl Kim, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you, Joe, for inviting me. Uh, I want to begin by saying that the views I'm expressing today uh, are my own uh, as a professor at the University of Hawaii. So I'd like to start. You're a disaster planner specialist. And how would you rate our response to the pandemic? Well, uh, it's been poor. And I think that there are a number of things that we have uh, failed at. I think the first is the lack of planning. Uh, even to date right now, we really don't have a uh, plan in the U.S. and in many other countries for how to respond to and manage uh, this, this crisis. Uh, I think our failures include the inability to anticipate and then prepare for the really negative consequences uh, of this pandemic. Um, and I think it shows a, a large failure on our part uh, in terms of the, the planning. When we think about planning, planning is can be defined as its knowledge to action. Uh, and I think we fail both on the knowledge side uh, and, and especially in terms of the actions or the lack of actions um, that we have taken. Um, I would begin by saying is that this event was anticipated. I mean, we've had many disease outbreaks that were uh, warning signs of the potential for something like this. I mean, going back to uh, 1994, when the first Ebola cases um, broke out in Central Africa, and then 1997, we had the avian influenza, 2002 SARS. We've also had a lot of experience with 
uh, HIV AIDS, uh, not just in Africa, you know, where 16 million people were killed, but uh, in the U.S. and uh, many other countries around the world. So in, in some respects, we should have been prepared and ready to respond uh, with the, the outbreak of this, uh, of this disease. Um, we had other signals as well, too, and there were really bad blue seasons, 2009, I think even 2018, in which uh, our healthcare system, our hospitals were overwhelmed. These were all uh, warning signals, warning signs uh, that we could have or should have done more to um, anticipate uh, this, this disease. So, before the COVID-19 pandemic, the U.S. was rated as the country that was best able to respond to a pandemic. What do you think caused our dramatic failures in responding to COVID-19? Was it leadership? I think that there are many uh, aspects of our, of our uh, failure. I mean, part of it is leadership. Part of it is not having the systems in place to allow for the planning and coordination of the response to this. I think that there are other challenges that we face with this type of uh, disease. I mean, this disease, there is a lot of uncertainty as well, too. And part of the uh, challenge has been managing information and getting consistent information messaging out to the public uh, in the absence of having a uh, vaccine or medical treatment for this, uh, for this disease. Well, in that regard, I have heard that it was very hard to collect the data from hospitals and other data to help track the disease. Was there a serious problem in data collection? Oh, yes, yes. And it involves the whole system that should have been set up that includes many moving parts. I mean, first, we were slow to start the testing. Uh, and without widespread, reliable testing, it's very difficult to know where the disease is spreading, which groups are most impacted, and then also what sorts of strategies make the most sense. So testing is an important part of the data uh, that was missing early on in this process. And while we've improved that capability, still there are many underserved places which either don't have testing capability or it takes too long to get the test results from, uh, which then also leads into the second part of this, which is uh, the ability to trace the disease, um, to do the contact tracing. Uh, and this is a complicated affair. Uh, this, is, this is challenging to uh, try to do uh, contact tracing. And I think we needed more uh, resources, more attention to developing this uh, capability to trace those who uh, have been uh, diagnosed or who are sick and who they may have come in uh, contact with. That's related to another uh, data problem, which relates to the tracking uh, of the disease. And while it's related to the 
contact tracing, we also really need to be able to track uh, where the disease has spread, um, what areas have been most impacted, what groups are most uh, likely to be affected. And the, the tracking part of this has been really uh, complicated and difficult in part, even though we have the technologies, even though we have the data systems, even though uh, we, we have the capability to do this, there are concerns regarding privacy, regarding confidential information, sensitive information, uh, regarding who owns the data as we look across the, the healthcare system. Um, and so those are some of the problems and, and reasons that I think that we have failed to, you know, collect and manage the essential information needed to effectively respond to, uh, and manage this, this disease. I think part of this has to do with the changes in technology, uh, as well, too. As you may know, many countries have been able to implement more advanced systems for tracking and tracing based upon uh, mobile phone applications, based upon other telecommunications and uh, tracking systems. Um, we've failed to be able to implement those in part because we haven't had a, a really strong uh, coordinated effort to manage this. I think detecting, tracing, and tracking are, are the major parts of this, but then also linking all this to the types of treatments that need to be uh, carried out. And, uh, and, and again, there, that's another aspect of this that I think we've fallen short on. Well, you've discussed the failures, and I'd like to know, are there more failures that you think need to be discussed? And have there been successes in our handling of the pandemic? Yeah, I think there have been successes. Um, I think some of the work that the, uh, the researchers and data scientists have been able to do represent um, some successes. I think there's been another success, which is hard to, uh, to describe is that it's increased the awareness of the deficiencies in our system. And I think these, the improvements to better track the disease, to better track our failures represent a type of a a success, uh, even though it, it did not come soon enough and it did not prevent, you know, the, the, the many thousands of people that, uh, have been either killed by the disease or really adversely impacted by this, uh, by, by this disease. So, um, there are some, I, I would say limited, uh, successes, but Still, this virus is not under control. And considering we have already over 190,000 deaths in this country, that is rather scary. Yes. So, what do you think we need to do to get COVID-19 under control? Well, again, I, I think, uh, as I was mentioning, we need to improve 
the testing, tracing, tracking systems so that they are more integrated and and more effective. And and that requires, I believe, a greater investment in training and education and capacity building to make this system work. I don't think we invest enough in the training and capacity building aspects of not just collecting this data, but also managing this data and then applying it so that it can be used uh, for community interventions in the absence um, of uh, a vaccine or um, medical response to this uh, disease. Do you think that requiring people to wear masks and limiting large gatherings would also help? Of course. I mean, of course, those are those are the things that we've been forced into doing because of the lack of a vaccine and other types of uh, medical responses to this. We need to do all of these uh, non-pharmaceutical solutions, uh, whether it's wearing a mask or promoting greater hygiene, sanitizing and cleaning uh, high-touch areas, um, social distancing, avoiding contact with uh, people who may be infected. These are all things that need to be done as part of a holistic strategy for uh, combating this pandemic. I think one of the things, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in controlling any disease, it's not just medical interventions that work. You also have to do the non-medical stuff, which is masks or good hygiene, correct? Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and from the many disease outbreaks that we've had in the past, um, we have had experience in terms of how to manage this. And so, and so I think part of this is recognizing what is different about this disease and moving more quickly uh, so that we can uh, address this. I mean, one of the other failures that I think uh, that's occurred is this is a global pandemic. Uh, I think when I looked this morning, or something like, 28.2 million cases uh, with 6.4 million uh, in the U.S. I think India now has overtaken Brazil with like 4.5 million cases. Uh, and, and, and part of the failure, I think, has been the U.S.'s withdrawal or um, backing down from the kind of global leadership that I think was really important uh, as part of this, both in terms of detection, but also uh, responding to this. Uh, this can't be just, you know, one country by itself, you know, responding to this because this is a, this is a global pandemic and we're all connected globally. And so I think that that's another dimension 
uh, of the of the failure that we've experienced. Not to recognize this as a global threat, that there is tremendous value in the U.S. having not just leadership but active engagement uh, in terms of addressing uh, this global crisis. And along those lines, the U.S. used to be a leader in this. During the Ebola crisis, we sent people to African countries to help train them how to contain the virus. Yes, and, and that's a, a role that we have backed down off of. So, in terms of controlling future pandemics, what do you think the U.S. needs to do? And what would you say needs to be the global response so that we can keep these under control and minimize damage? Well, I, I think the first thing is to recognize some of the weaknesses that exist, you know, in our healthcare system, in our system of disease uh, surveillance, and then in the treatment and response uh, for this and, and other diseases. I, I do hope that one of the things that comes from this is increased awareness and increased investment in our healthcare system. I think that's one of the first things to, to really focus on. And one of the things about disasters, and I've spent a career uh, studying disasters, that they magnify the weaknesses or vulnerabilities or flaws that exist in our systems. And I think that this disaster has served as a wake-up call that we do need to fix our healthcare system, which, I mean, it involves everything from the hospitals to uh, the emergency medical services, but, but also the whole system of financing and taking care of people who are sick in the U.S. and in, in other countries. I think there's been a kind of systematic disinvestment in, in healthcare, and we are paying the price uh, of that. I was looking at some, you know, I, I do quite a bit of work in Korea, uh, and I was looking at some statistics, and I think South Korea on a per capita basis has three times the number of hospital beds than the U.S. And there's been, as, as you know, a kind of systematic disinvestment in hospitals and public health so that I think the number of hospital beds between 1980 and 2000, you know, plummeted from, I think they went to like about 40% of the decrease in the, in the number of of hospitals and uh, beds. And, and I think that that was uh, about the change in how healthcare is provided. Um, I mean, part of this was looking at the profitability of, of healthcare in, in hospitals. And so there was a push to, you know, increase the, the efficiencies uh, to make hospitals uh, and much of our healthcare system uh, a for-profit enterprise. 
and as a consequence of that, as as you know, I think, you know, there was a push to go to like ninety percent occupancy of hospital beds, right? Obviously, when you have a global pandemic, that model doesn't really work or doesn't serve us well because we're operating for reasons of profit close to capacity. And so I think what this uh, pandemic or this global disaster has done is it has revealed uh, the really stark disinvestment that we have made in healthcare. And, and and you can see this. I mean, those countries with socialized medicine had a better response uh, to this pandemic. Uh, with socialized medicine, you don't have the uh, the kind of disincentives uh, that exist, you know, in, in our system. And by that, I mean, you know, with a socialized system, if you're sick or if you feel sick or you feel that you might have the coronavirus. You go get it checked out. Whereas in uh, our system, where we have so many uninsured people, I don't know. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think something like 45% of our workforce has no sick leave. And there are large numbers of people that don't have insurance. Uh, and the, the combination of no sick leave or uh, not having insurance creates a real disincentive to report that you're sick or that you may have the coronavirus or that you may have the coronavirus and you're going into work, which explains the, the kind of spread and the takeoff uh, of the disease, uh, you know, in our country. And again, you know, there is that, that group that was uh, covered by the Affordable Care Act. You know, there, I, I think there's 14 states that have, uh, that have rejected the Affordable Care Act. So, uh, the inability to um, cover those uninsured, medically uninsured groups, I think, is a is another problem that's emerged, you know, in the face of this pandemic. Definitely, and I would add, it's not just a problem of uninsured; it's also a problem of underinsurance. Before the pandemic, the Commonwealth Fund came out with a report that. of the non-elderly population, which is roughly 19 to 64, are either underinsured or uninsured. And to me, when you have a system where 45% of people can't get the help they need, that is a dramatic failure. Especially among that age group, because they are most likely to be active, be working, to be in the uh, the the labor force, and then not just at higher risk of catching the disease, but also uh, spreading it as well, too. Those are excellent points. Before we end, do you have anything that you would like to add? Well, I think the, the United States is a large, complicated, diverse, vast nation. And I think any administration, any government would be challenged by this. But I think there is a need for um, consistent messaging. I think there's a need for accurate information 
and improve coordination across states, municipalities, and localities, and also across the public sector and private sector and NGOs and volunteer uh, agencies. And so part of what we need to have is better leadership, coordination, communications to fight this as a whole. That said, I also believe that the innovation, the really effective responses are going to occur at the local level. Um, and, and that we do need to support the development of local systems uh, for collecting data, for managing data, for planning, and developing innovative solutions as to how to not just contain the disease, or to promote social distancing, or to reduce this, but actually over the long term, how we can adapt to this. And that type of innovation and change occurs at the local level. Uh, and, and that's where the interesting work should go and the emphasis should be. Professor Kim, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you very much. And thank you for your podcast, which I think is an important um, service to our country. Thank you. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.